spiritual connection to country. Priorities and responsibilities is looking after my family and, and my mob. Call out culture, walking a fine line between toxicity and accountability. Back home to country. Shh. Inyad. Nia. Yamanindai Gulbiai. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inyad Nia. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather, the unceded homelands of ancestors and all Aboriginal people, and pay my respects to country and elders past, present and future. I just want to say that, you know, we've briefly spoke about, you know, our main topic, which is black liberation. What is black liberation? And you also mentioned this next generation forging forward without asking for permission. Mm-hmm. stepping out of predominant white spaces and creating black spaces curated by and for black people. Did I say that? Yes. Did I say that? And Ooh. economically, socially and educationally empowering ourselves and each other. Oh. Mm. Was I on a roll that day? You really were, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, <laughs> I've just got I a diag on to... my notes here. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to talk about that. You know, I guess part of this black renaissance and black liberation is like you said, changing the mindset. We want yeah. to be thriving. And for the longest time, it's we've been feeding our youth the wrong information. That's right. And because a lot of our youth are being educated in, in a very westernised education system. And as you can see up there with the, um, the new Gumbangi Language School, I think that's a step in the right direction because that's what we need. We need our kids coming through culturally strong knowing who they are, entrenched in who they are as, as a black person navigating, you know, a very westernised world. Um, and the only way to do that is is if we have culturally immersed educational programs, you know, and start normalising this stuff. This is normal. This is normal to grow up being cultured, being proud of who you are. Oh, so true. Linda Junko is a great first guest to have on our podcast because of what she stands for and her take on black liberation and also you know the family that she comes from uh she comes from a very you know staunch family who have been on the front lines of black liberation and black resistance for for many years she's grown up in that and immersed in that so yeah she's going to be brilliant i'm excited Hello. Oh, I'm so sorry. Don't, please don't be sorry. It's okay. We've got you now. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. Life happens. How are you? I'm good, sis. Yeah. So I kind of want to reiterate the fact that we do appreciate your time. Um, We understand how busy you must be. And... I'm going to be honest, like, I'm a bit of a fangirl. Like, I follow you on socials. I love hearing what you have to say in your your thought leadership. And so I'm really excited to have you join us today. But as Black Followers do, it would be really great to start the podcast by introducing yourself and telling us where you're from and who's your mom. Yeah, sure. No, first and foremost, it's, it's an honour to be sharing space with you both, um, you know, inspirational sister girls in your own right as well. And I'm a fangirl as well. So it, it's, yeah, it goes both ways. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so my name is Linda Junko. I'm a proud Wiradjuri in Bardawal. I'm from Arambi, Cowra. I grew up on the mission. Um, I was born in Cowra, raised in Cowra, and um, was very fortunate to um, have a childhood which was immersed in, in my Wiradjuri culture and surrounded by elders and love and community. Um, which is something that I've, you know, I've always carried with me um, from childhood into womanhood today. Um, so, yeah, I've lived in Queensland. My mum comes from the Torres Strait Islands as well, so I've been very blessed to share both cultures. Um, spent my teenage years up there with um, that side of my family and then relocated, made the trip back down south to Koori country and have lived in Sydney for the past 20 years and just recently moved back home to country, couldn't resist the calling. Um, Career-wise, I worked in um, I've worked in law. I started off at a traineeship with the Legal Aid Commission um, with a cohort of other young black fellows back in um, the early 2000s. Um, and through that experience, I actually thought, no, I don't want to venture into a law degree. And I made the decision to go into education. So I've been in the education sector for about 10 years now, working as a high school teacher, now uh, progressed into the university sector as well, doing a master's, have done a master's, now doing a PhD. So that's my career. On the another side of that, I'm also involved in community projects as well, mainly around um, activism and advocacy for our mob who have been in, impacted by the, um, the criminal justice system or injustice system, family removals, um, uh, the continuing dispossession, land and water loss, cultural loss, etc. The list goes on and on for our mob, unfortunately. So, yes, yes that's me, who I am. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today. A black woman who is multifaceted and on the ground getting shit done. I understand that you do a lot of activism and you do a lot of activism outside of work and your family responsibilities and I would say that you're a bit of a cultural warrior to be honest but I mean you came from a family of cultural warriors you know you were immersed in that from quite a young age when you mention the names of your father and um, your aunties and uncles I mean since the 70s or prior to that you have a long lineage of activism can you tell us a bit about that what was it like to be around you know very strong cultural peoples Yes, yes, I've actually sat with that for for quite some time now in terms of where does this thinking or the, the activation actually come from, you know. And I think it goes right back. It goes right back to our ancestors in terms of the Wiradjuri resistance that, you know, took on um, the British expansion when they entered into Wiradjuri territory. So I think, you know, since the days of uh, Winterdine, who was our leader around the Bathurst area, we've always... Um, stood within that pride of resistance um, and I think within my own mob um, with my aunties and my uncles and my, my father reclaiming our identity reclaiming our voices reclaiming our history was a focal point in you know that ongoing resistance Wiradjuri resistance um, so when we you know we use the term um, activism, I think it's essentially a part of who we are as Wiradjuri people in that 
we have to defend our homelands. We have to defend our families and our communities against the the regime of colonialism and, and settler colonialism um, today. So, yeah, I, I think it's it's a um, it's more to do with the obligations around duty and uh, caring for custodian well, custodianship of country and caring for kin as well. Yeah, you're, you're so right. It, it's in our blood to be resistance, isn't it? And I think the, the Rajri mob in general, being just over the Blue Mountains and and bordering nations like my my country, which is the Wawanyimba people and the Gamilara people, and yeah, so it's it's quite a big country. I guess a lot of the time too, you know, we we forget that you know the colonial impacts that we've had to deal with and the attempt of erasure and particularly the Wiradjuri people have been hit quite hard which is why there was a lot of Wiradjuri warriors and a lot of Wiradjuri warriors who have been written into history so I think I often reflect on you know at what point do we get to be soft and we get to be happy and we get to enjoy our you know our cultural lineage and our languages and and ensure that our children understand that yes we are resilient people and we are strong and we are proud and you know we come from a lineage of people who are also strong and proud but we also come from a lineage of people who have been soft with each other and have celebrated love and you know all things that come with being cultured people I guess what I'm trying to say is do you think black liberation enables that I, I wholeheartedly believe that it does so. I think the agency of, of uh, being a warrior is rooted and grounded in black love. It's the love for our families. It's love for, you know, the sisterhood, the matriarchal systems that we come from. It's love for country. It's love for the animals. It's love for the skies, the stars, the ancestors, our creator beings, you know. Um, everything that we do, our culture is grounded in love. And I think that's the beauty of who we are as First Nations peoples is that we're not, you know, there's this perception around being uh, the black angry woman on the front line. You know, rage rage is healthy in this context. You know, it's healthy. <laughs> black rage is healthy. But the important message there is, is that it's actually grounded in Aboriginal and Indigenous love that goes across millennia. You know, it has survived 60,000 years and it's going to continue to survive. And I think that's the real push behind it is that we have so much love embedded in our blood, in our DNA, that we have a, a duty of custodianship to carry forth that love amongst the next generations that come. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. That was um, powerful, very powerful. I think, yes, black liberation is rooted in love and it should be rooted in love, right? A love for each other. And on the back of that, I guess one of the questions that I'd really like to ask you, because I have read your wonderful article, you know, that was published by Indigenous X called Black Liberation. It's time to be on the right side of history. So what does black liberation look like for our people? You know, talking 20 to 30, 50 years from now, you know, we talk about our right to political, social and economic um, prosperity, but what does that actually look like in practice? Yeah, that's a really good question, sis. And um, 
for me, it takes some imagining of what could become, you know, what could happen if we actually became um, emancipated from the colonial regime. You know, what could that, what, the, what are the endless possibilities of, you know, a, a life free of colonial control? A life free to be able to roam across our lands without, you know, the pressure of trespassing onto, you know, a farmer's property or whatever. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's the free to be who we are, yes. as yes. we have always done. Um, so Black Liberation for me takes on board, you know, um, the principles of Indigenous sovereignty, the right to exist, to have the authority of our, our own futures, an Indigenous future, um, and the right to control our own destinies. Um, it's not, you know, the way that we've been living the last 20 years, um, which, you know, we've come out of the assimilative era and those policies that our grandparents went through. Um, I saw the, I still lived the residue of that era, um, growing up in a small country town with racism and the education system, you know, still predominantly, um, teaching a terra nullius history. Um, so, Black liberation for me looks like, and I imagine it as being having Indigenous First Nations schools, having our own curriculum, having, you know, our own institutions, having our own political representation. Um, it's, it's right across the spectrum, sis. Like, the, the, the possibilities are endless in terms of what an Indigenous future could look like based on Black liberation. That's so powerful. And, and that's what we want. We want our people to thrive. And what, what is Black Liberation is going to look like, you know, in, in the near future, it's, it's going to be very different. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think you, you really hit it on the head there and that it is already, you know, um, starting to emerge now. Just in the last 10 years, um, well, 20 years actually, we've seen such a massive cultural resurgence here on the East Coast, you know, where we were deemed for such a long time as the, you know, unauthentic, lost black fellas do, mm -hmm. do you know what i mean you had to go up north to see real tribal black fellas you know yeah. so we've reclaimed we've revitalized mm -hmm. we've reinvigorated who we are as first nations peoples with distinct identities and we're so diverse and i think that's the real richness of our mob is the diversity in it you know, Miradjuri to Nyepa to Gadigal to Darug country where I'm at today. You know, that's the beauty of this continent is that there's so much cultural richness, richness here that we're only just starting to see what, you know, that looks like for us in the 21st century. You know, we can't go back to 200 years ago, but we can reclaim what's left and we can do it justice in the now. Exactly. And I think a lot of the time, we are limited to the past. We are limited to 200 years ago and what culture looks like in terms of 200 years ago. But I think as we see with New South Wales, Aboriginal people, First Nations people, whether it's Radri, whether it's Nympha, that, you know, culture can evolve and we have the right to evolve with culture as, as a group of distinct people. And it makes me think about, um, you know, black liberation in terms of land, right? Because we belong to a certain part. And, you know, I think about land in terms of not only belonging, but land in terms of a way of empowerment that we as black people haven't had the sovereign right to do. 
So I think racism is not only a, a feeling or an experience that we face as black people, but racism is also the fact that we've been excluded from being able to benefit from lands in which we have sovereign rights to benefit from the resources, benefit from the location and doing so while protecting land. I think black liberation involves all of that too. So what do you think in terms of our sovereign rights as black people and our sovereign right to also economically empower ourselves? I I wholeheartedly agree once again, sis, in that land is the central uh, feature of our conflict with the the settler colonial regime it's always been about land our conflict with you know the commonwealth as well has, has been about land so i think you know within within the um the context of black liberation we have to have land returned we have to have land back in order to restore you know all of those uh, cultural practices that we've been talking about here within the you know today's era um so you know <laughs> There's been a lot of political talk around what a treaty could look like with, with the Commonwealth government. At the centre of that, for me as a Wiradjuri woman, it has to be about repatriation of land and having free and ongoing access to land without any interference or intervention whatsoever. So, you know, that for me is a, a core part of justice, Indigenous justice Um not only here, but you can look at it globally as well. Mob are talking about that affiliation between land and how we cannot be disconnected from it, but we are part of it. And therefore, you know, the erasure of land is, you know, essentially an erasure of us. So, yeah, in, in, in terms of our survivance, land is a key ingredient, ingredient of us here in the present, but also in the future as well. There was something that you said earlier, um, and I didn't, I didn't want to interrupt you before, Barbie, but I was going to say that, like, I, I could remember, like, at school, not even at school, but um, I'm not sure if you have experienced this too, but people would always say about, like, mob, you know, on the East Coast that, like, there was no culture. But the thing was that there's always been culture, like, and it, I don't know, it was very ignorant of people to think that, you know, you did have to go up north to essentially... Uh, you know, learn about actual Aboriginal people and culture when it's like, you know, our, our mobs have been practicing culture for generations. Like even if it's not, um, traditional tribal way anymore, it's still, uh, it was an evolution of that, you know, because of everything that our, um, our old people went through and, and our great grandparents and grandparents and mums and dads and ourselves, our own experiences. But like, it's just, it blows my mind that people think that there was no culture in, in New South Wales when that's like a complete lie. It's always been there, you know? Yeah, a hundred percent, sis. Like it, it's, it's real heavy, like big colonial vibes, isn't it? It's big colonial language as well. And I think, you know, um, through some of the heavy lifting that, um, you know, the generation before us have done, we've mm. reclaimed that meta narrative around indigeneity. You know, we've reclaimed what is a cultural person, um, here in Australia. You know, because a long time we've been, um, you know, pushed to the margins around our own identity. And it's still happening today, you know, just with Aboriginalization. But in saying that, we've, We've come a long way in in terms of stamping ourselves as authority, well, sovereign identities here on the East Coast, in particular New South Wales. Yeah, and that narrative around having a lack of culture in New South Wales, 
It makes me think of the old people, particularly that movement from the 1920s through to the 1970s. I mean, some of the most staunch, strong, cultured black people originated from New South Wales. The resistance movement ultimately started in New South Wales. So it, it breaks my heart when I hear people say that New South Wales mob don't have culture or aren't um, rooted in culture. We always have, and our old people ensured that we have. You know, a lot of strong old people ensured that we were we are rooted in culture, and that's off the back of dealing with colonisation and the impact and violence of colonisation that came with it. And like you said, being pushed to the margins, having to either try to survive on missions or living on the fringes of townships and trying to uh, survive and, and look after your families off the back of slave labour, really. You know, and trying to operate underneath the economic structures of this society. We come from very strong old people. Absolutely, sis. And they weren't silly. They weren't mm-hmm. silly. You know, they knew what they were doing, you know. Um, just some of the stories from my own mob growing up on the missions there, you know, we had a lot of what well, my grandmother's family alone, she was fortunate in that she wasn't removed. She was a fair-skinned lady, um, but she was a Rajri law woman as well um, who saw her younger siblings being removed, um, had Christianity brainwashed, you know, from a young age, but she was very strong in who she was. And growing up, I learnt um, what it actually was to be a Kuri. While blackfellas in the school system were still being referred to as Aboriginal, we were going to school saying, no, we're Koorys. And so we were challenging those narratives, you know, at a very, very young age. Yeah, so whilst we were surrounded by racialization and racial stereotypes, our mob was solid. And, you know, we're very fortunate to come from those elders and leaders that, you know, have paved the way for us. Um, good gems that a lot of you know a lot of our people particularly a lot of our Koori and Māori people need to be hearing about you know but one of the things and and this might be a little too deep but I'm going to ask it anyways and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to (laughs) like when I reflect on some of our old people and what they were fighting for when they were you know, busy trying to survive, you know, and there's this this whole push for sovereignty. Why do you think the recognition of sovereignty is important to black liberation? For me, sis, um, the issue of sovereignty, it goes right back, and we have to take it right back to 1770, to the and it, you know, with that proclamation by the British, what they did is they actually fundamentally disappeared us. All of our 60,000 year lineage, all of our connection right across this continent, not only just this continent, but you know other areas around the globe, they essentially erased us um, under that myth. And what Indigenous sovereignty does is that it actually recognises us as legitimate, or the legitimacy of our mob as having prior occupation before the arrival of British. With that comes you know, the right to have some form of authority on our own tribal lands, on our own homelands. Um, If you have a look at it in terms of um, a a comparative with other settler nations like the US and New Zealand, um, you know, yes, they still have issues with the settler um, colony there, but they have had their sovereignty recognised. And with that, through the instruments of a treaty, the Commonwealth 
well, the jurisdiction of that settler state has to negotiate terms of coexistence with First Nations peoples. We've never been afforded the right to coexist peacefully. We're pretty much still living under an undeclared war without a treaty. That to me is an international right that we have as First Nations peoples that we've never been afforded. And what's happened over the past 200 years is we've had a, a, um, a deliberate cover-up. Um, we've had a deliberate silencing of Indigenous sovereignty and our rights under international law. And if we are to actually achieve, uh, you know, a very small parcel of what black liberation could be, Indigenous sovereignty must be at the forefront of that. Are we there in terms of, you know, being able to negotiate this with the Commonwealth or the government of today? I don't know. I, I don't know, sis. I, I don't think they have the maturity. I don't think they have the capacity, you know, from what I've seen just in the last 12 months with the, you know, this conservative government, it's, it's been really a shit show, you know, just in, in terms of their own internal crap that goes on within their system. For them to actually come and sit at our table, I don't think I have the respect for them yet, to, to be honest. I, I don't think I have the respect for them as, as a culture of people, you know, the way that they treat their elders, their women, you know, the, the misogyny and the, the patriarchy as well. I don't think I can wholeheartedly sit there and negotiate with a, a people who doesn't respect my values, my beliefs, and actually goes against those, you know, at a very, very intimate level, you know. So yes, these are all questions around um, Indigenous sovereignty and how we're going to navigate the regime, how we're going to decolonise um, as well while we're living underneath that entrapment of, you know, the, the structure that is settler colonialism. And I think our mob need to actually understand what settler colonialism is. It's actually uh, a system built to replace the Indigenous population. So what we've seen, if you just need to have a look at the language that Pauline Hanson uses. You know, she's referred to herself as an Indigenous person or Indigenous person to Australia. You know, that there is an example of settler colonialism where um, because, you know, after a certain generation of Australians haven't been born here, they now assume an identity of um, nativeness, you know, so then have replaced us. So it's that absurdity as well since that I don't know if I can deal with this absurdity that is, you know, white fragility and white privilege and mm. sorry, I'm going on a tangent, but no, <laughs> it's so but it's sickening. Like, it is, it's sickening. Mm. Yeah. Like and we deal with it constantly on a daily basis. No, it's it's a joke. And I think it's a classic example of how flawed their not only political system but how flawed their legal system is yeah absolutely so anyways this conversation can go on and on to be honest um but i kind of want to step back from all of that stuff and get to know you a little bit better now you know tell us a bit about arambi mission what's the history like what and and what's it like living there now and when you go back to visit and um and I'm pretty sure it's probably similar to when I go home to Bree. Well, the, the beautiful thing about Arambisis is that before it was gazetted as a mission and then re-gazetted as a reserve, it was um, our traditional camping grounds. It was always my clan's 
um, part of Wiradjuri country that goes right back to time immemorial. And that's the beauty of why we we're proudly say that we're from Arambi. Um, and I think within the same breath, having to say that, you know, we're proud of coming from the mission as well, is that we've survived. We've survived living under the, that regimented life that my grandparents went through, you know, living under mission management, you know. Um, whilst my family, you know, I think I'm very blessed that I come from a strong, strong-willed, strong-headed family that have always fought back against, you know, that those controls. But um, some of our mob weren't as as fortunate, you know, in that they were stripped right down to the core of who they are through racism, and and you know, we can see that with the legacy of drug and alcohol abuse and and poverty, you know, with on on those missions as well. Um, so going back to country for me, sis, it's it's how I survive. It's how I survive, you know, living in the city. It's how I survive the nine to five, working in institutions and, and even within activism as well. Um, it, it's my strength. It's um, my spirit. It's who I am as a Radri person, you know, and it's all, it's at the forefront of what I do as a Radri person. So when we talk about Radri ontologies, it's what I do. It's who I am. And it's always going to be going to be at the forefront of my path and what I choose to do with this life, I guess. Um, the river, the river is something that I can't separate from my identity as well. Um, yeah, and I think that's the, the beautiful thing about us mob is of the Murray-Darling Basin is that it's the rivers that connect us. You know, it's the lifeblood of our nations and it connects us all. Um, you know, Wiradjuri mob, um, are the biggest in New South Wales and we know ourselves as being the people of the three rivers so the Lachlan, the Murrumbidgee and the Warmble otherwise known as the Macquarie and um, you know so that whole river system flows down into the Murray, the Darling and um, you know connects us down to South Australia mob as well so I think that's the beautiful of our peoples. Um, so interesting hey because the Barwon that runs through Bree so the Barwon is uh is something that I run to when I get home. I feel that very strong spiritual connection to the river. But one thing I've noticed in, you know, as I get older, is that it's not my connection to the river that draws me back home. I believe firmly that water has memory and it's the river that draws me home, the cultural and spiritual connection that the surroundings has to it and what it gives life to. So I feel you on that sense because every time I'm home, we all run to the river. And growing up, our whole lives was about the river. You know, if we weren't down there fishing, we were down there swimming. That's why that connection to country is so important. And, you know, that's what connects us all is is our rivers. I guess, you know, it's hard to articulate it in, you know, using English terms, I think. You know what I mean? Because it, 100%. It, you know, we... Mm. We think, we feel, we, you know, the way that we try and express it, it comes from the heart and trying to do it, speak about it in English terms, it doesn't give it justice, you know, yeah. like it's our church, it's our, our shopping centre, yeah. it's you know, our playground, you know, it's all of these things wrapped up into one. It's our mother as well, you know, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, even when we look at language, I know you have a lot, a lot of knowledge around the Wiradjuri language. Uh, even when you 
look at, you know, some of the terms in language, I mean, multiple meanings around those is fascinating. I mean, in English, a lot of the words mean one or two things, but in language, one word, given the context, means plenty of things and it's, it's incredible. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that's one of the first things that, you know, the early uh, settlers actually stated is that the language system, our language system is so complex. It's something that they couldn't grab onto like that, you know, whereas our mob learned English pretty much overnight. But for mm. them to learn ours, it took them a very, very long time. And even then, they still didn't get it right. So, mm. yeah, um, I, I think it's a, a very powerful thing, the way that Wiradjuri have, you know, started to restore our language systems. Um, and, and it's at the heart of, you know, this resurgent work that's going to take us into the future and only make us stronger as well. Exactly. So my nan turned 80 last year and... A lot of things in her old age are coming back to her and a lot of language is coming back, which is, which I find fascinating. And I'd sit and I'd yarn to her and then she'd just go off in language. And I'm like, Nan, wait, stop. What do you mean? What are you saying? And then she'll tell me the meaning. And I'm like, why haven't you brought this up before? She's like, I just remembered it. You know, and when your old grandfather used to sit around with his family, they used to say X, Y, Z, you know, and she would tell me the meaning of that. And it's beautiful. So a lot of this stuff, I think, is um, particularly for our old people when they would have been younger and, and around language. A lot of these languages, I think, is in their, you know, DNA memory, to be honest, not just in memory in general. I think it comes out in old age and who's to say what's in our DNA and what's been passed down through our DNA? I don't know. Maybe I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful by the time I'm 80, some things just come out. Uh, Who knows? I believe you, sis. I really do believe you. Like, I think language is a part of country as well, you know. It's just sleeping, like, the way that our culture slept for, you know, um, the last hundred years it's really just sleeping and you can hear it amongst children especially mm-hmm. young kids young babies you know the dialect the way that our old people used to talk it's still there and it's only when they start going to school that they unlearn it so I think you know those that those the dialect and the way that we pronounced and used words it's there from birth unfortunately yes. we unlearn it we unlearn though you know the core yeah of our language through going through, you know, the Western education system. Isn't it so special, though, that, like, now that there's this huge, like, revitalisation of our languages and this whole resurgence of it, that, like, you know, like your Nen Barbie and even, like, my old auntie, um, because I've got Wiradjuri connections too through the Ferguson side, the Murrumbidgee, Warren Gesner, my old auntie, she, um, her old father was old grandfather Ferguson, William Ferguson, she was singing this song and it was a traditional Wiradjuri song and like like she didn't know language like most of her life and then and you know it's it's just amazing that like you know that they also um must feel that that they can share that because you know a lot of their experiences growing up was um they weren't allowed to speak it and and it was taken away so it's just it's so special that like they can feel that they can share that too like always obviously been with them so it's yeah it's pretty amazing Mm. yeah that's interesting you say that because there was an an old auntie in Brie as well 
many years ago, my twin and I were about 16, and um, she sang my twin and I a song, and she said, oh, your old grandfather, Jack Simpson, he sang that song in language when we were married so he could marry us in traditional ways and I'm like oh my goodness but I don't know something maybe it's something you know and when our old people are near to transitioning that they you know something spiritual happens and they look for comfort in our traditional languages. I can share from when, because uh, I moved home when my grandmother, she had dementia for, for the last 10 years of her life and um, her wish was to stay in her home. Um, so early on in my teaching degree, I taught in my local home community and helped care for my grandmother. And there's something beautiful around that transitioning um, period as well. Um, her grandfather would come and sit to, and talk to her. My nan used to say, you know, I'm coming, I'm, I'm coming with you, yes. You know, because she there was something a part of her that knew, you know, that she was going to go and join them soon. But I have no doubt that those old people, you know, come and prepare them for that transition as well and, and sing. And I think that they're doing ceremony on that side as well and that language component starts to come through and it's heard. You know, the vibrations are heard, especially in her sleep. So I have no doubt in my mind that they're preparing on that side of, you know, the spirit world as that transition happens from the physical. Yes. How powerful is that? Yeah. It's what makes our mob special, you know. Yeah. It's what makes our mob special in that we don't believe death is is um, definite. You know, it's just a, the next journey. We, we're going home. Yeah, exactly. 100% agree with you. Yeah, just powerful. So on that note, is there any particular word in Muradri that you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, um, I'd like to share Yinjamara. Yinjamara is a Muradri philosophy and way of life. And in actual fact, it has uh, five interrelated meanings. Um, it means uh, to be respectful. It means to be polite, to be gentle, um, to have honour within yourself um, to, and to do things slowly. So Wiradjuri Way is grounded in Ninjamara in who we are as an individual, but also our responsibility amongst our clan and amongst our nation and country as well. That's beautiful. Ninjamara. How do you say it? Ninjamara. Ninjamara. Ninjamara love it that's a classic example right there of how one word can have many meanings and i think in all honesty it was um it's grounded in law it's grounded in Muradri law in how you know it's the protocols of how we are to treat each other in the natural world as well mm. so i wonder what would Muradri be do you know yeah, it's, it's funny you say that because um, some of my language uh, friends and teachers have, you know, looked at the meaning of Wiradjuri and the first component of that is Wire and that means no in our language and um, Dure at the end, which means not having. So if you put it together, it means not having. And I'm guessing that comes boils down to, you know, the, um, the value of not having and not being possessive. You know, unfortunately, we've settler and in the introduced society that we live in it's about possessions right and it's about greed and materialistic value whereas we are the complete opposite of that that's what i believe yeah, yeah. exactly because gamel gamilari gamel no yeah. well in well when is no 
Yeah. Um, same as Uwalari, because wal, that's no as well. Cause, and you can find that, that you know, a connection in our languages. It's really, it's actually so interesting. And even like with, with, um, with my dad's tribe, like with Murawari, that means to, to fall with a, to fall with a stick or to be hit with a stick or something like that. Then it's actually my great, great grandfather, Jimmy Barker, he actually says that like, cause Murawari were known as like a very, um, very tough, strong people as well. So like it, it was, it's something to do with that, like to be hit with the stick. It, yeah. It's really interesting when you really learn about the, the language and the names of where our tribes names, what they mean. Mm. I mean, I could sit down and have a yarn about this, you know, around a campfire for ages, for days around who bestowed each of these beautiful nations their names. And obviously, you know, our stories, our creation stories go back to Bayami. You know, Bayami gave us our names, Bayami gave us our identity, our country, you know. But I think there's so much, there's such beautiful work there in reclaiming Bayami's story and especially here in New South Wales and, and mapping out those song lines and, and the creator beings that connect us as Bayami's people as well under Bayami's law. Yeah, exactly. And I think that connection is quite evident in the similarities with words that we have because I know Nyurumba is land in Nyumba and Nyumpa. But it's also land in Uratri as well, right? Yeah. Yep. And Morawari and, and Uwalari. <laughs> yes, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> all that northwest, far west mob. Yeah. Just our mobs, they're just all just deadly strong people, like honestly. So as we finish up today, one of the things that Kelsey and I want to do is complete each episode with a recommendation of a podcast or a book by an Indigenous author or an Indigenous host? Yeah, um, I could recommend uh, the Frontier Wars podcast by Bogane Spearham, um, which is a fantastic work that he's been doing over the last five years, highlighting, you know, the resistance um, going right back to the early settler colonial period. I think that there is an instrument, um, you know, that is tackling all of these false narratives around our mob, and I recommend it, you know, push it forward to the front for any um, avid listener or reader um, of Black Literature. Um, in terms of books, um, I've got so many that I love that I can't just isolate one. But at the moment, um, I'd have to say anything by Larissa Barrent that she's put out in the last two years has been fantastic. And I've just bought one last week, actually. Like, I'm the biggest fangirl of Larissa Barrent. It isn't funny. Um, <laughs> um, and I can't think of the title. So I'm going to have to go to default and, and recommend, um, you know, the incredible, brilliant um, black excellence that is Aileen, Professor Aileen Morton Robinson and Talking Up to the White Woman. I've heard so much uh, about that book as well. So much great feedback. I'm yet to read it, but it's definitely on my list. And I'm a fangirl of, of Larissa Brent as well. And particularly the work she did around, um, you know, the, the Bowerville murders. Um, you know, obviously she's been working on that for many years, which would have been really tough, but really important work. So yeah, thank you. And when are you going to write a book? Um, I'm planning to do something uh, within the next 12 months, actually. I think being home and country has helped, you know, spark my creativity. So I'm hoping to put something together in the next 12 months. So watch this space. Oh, that's so exciting. Thanks again for um, taking time, Linda. We really, we really appreciate it. And 
Well, yeah, we can't wait to share this with everyone. Yatamatakai, thank you for your time today. Nawa. Shh. Inyar. Nia.